No one wants to fail, but ask any successful business owner or entrepreneur and they'll tell you that they learn more from failure than from success. This episode's guest is David Ferris, president and CEO of Ted Scott Designs. David's business journey and business philosophy is all about not being able to fail. David's business journey and business philosophy is all about not being afraid to fail and using what you learn to have future successes. Listen to the rest of the episode to learn more about David's journey. Well, David, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's so nice to meet you and to talk with you. Well, I'm just so curious to learn uh, all about you and your business um, or businesses. Um, so let's see. Let's. Why don't we start with um, Ted Scott Designs? Tell me a little bit about what Ted Scott Designs does for interior designers. So Ted Scott Designs uh, was born 50 years ago as a company called Barnes Custom Upholstery. I bought it from the founders about eight years ago, and we rebranded about two years ago. We are a direct-to-designer-only custom upholstery manufacturer. Now, that word custom has been really bastardized over the years. Yeah. You know, there's people that say, hey, it's custom if I take it off the shelf and sell it to you. Um, we're true custom, where we have a really solid catalog of 50 years of traditional transitional designs that super easy, buy one of those, put your cover on it, life is easy. But we can manipulate and alter those designs any way you want. So we truly are full custom. We can also do a single piece custom design for you. So if you send me a drawing or send me an inspiration, we can actually build a single piece of furniture specifically for you. But we are direct designer only. Um, we kind of are like a ghost. We don't really have a brand. We're not sold anywhere other than directly to designers. So the number one thing about us is that we don't compete with our designers and we do everything we can to ensure our designers can never be comp shopped. And that these days is such a huge component of what we do. Uh, we're 100% COM, we're 100% made to order, and we're fully customizable. Wow, that sounds like a dream for an interior designer, to be honest. Um, so tell me about um, your success in working just exclusively with interior designers. I know that some manufacturers struggle with that idea and having that concept behind their brand. You know, it's such a passion for me. I grew up the son of an entrepreneur. My dad was a door-to-door cash register salesman. So I did not know what people did in offices growing up. I knew what people did in shops and restaurants and, and storefronts because that was all of our friend base and that was my dad's customers. And most of those people he sold to were mom and pops starting out from scratch. And he spent so much time helping them grow their businesses through the, all kinds of different means that he had. So I brought that over to what I do now. You know, We have some amazing, really big firms that we deal with and we love them. They're great customers. But the lion's share of my customer base is small and independent designers. And I have a lot of designers who have never ordered custom furniture before. And we're so delighted to be able to help them, you know, Sherpa them through that process. Mm -hmm. um, I get every single day, I get an email that says, okay, I know this is a stupid question. I'm like, no, 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 you've never done this before. You're not asking enough questions. Let's go through this. You know, let's walk back through it until you're comfortable. So I think that's why we've been successful with designers because we do have that passion to really help them grow their business. Uh, and to be part of their growth over the years. Mm -hmm. So I know that a lot of times, sometimes uh, it it comes down to like a volume game, right? And so have you have you had any struggles with that? I mean, you are just the go-to person for custom furniture directly to designers. You know, we do we do nothing volume. We build everything into order. 
So we don't we don't take the first piece of wood off the stack until I have an order from you. Because you might want to customize it. You might need it three inches longer or two inches taller or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we don't stock any frames. There is no volume for us. My entire business is built around building one at a time. Now, we do have some people who buy six deep. I have a few stocking dealers that um, right. use their own brands, right, that we build for. But um, that's not our, our main business model. We really are built to order, so there is no volume. You know, I have one price list, and that's the designer price list. Um, we're 100% COM. Why these other guys upcharge for COM? They're charging you more to use your fabric? I, I don't get that either. Mm -hmm. um, so when designers come in my showroom, they're like, okay, so now what's my price? I'm like, one price list. That's it. The only people I sell to is you. I only need one price list because that's the only person who's ever going to buy it. So how do designers find you? I mean, you're at market. You know, the gorilla suit and the street corner has been really helpful. I got to admit, you know, that's with the flags. That's been a really good ploy for me. Um, you know, honestly, it's been word of mouth. Majority of it has been word of mouth. Instagram has been huge for us. Um, yeah. uh, designers being a very visual art, you know, there's, I think designers are the most amazing profession there is because you've got to be so mechanical and logistics minded and still so um, artistic minded at the same time. It's like those two worlds should collide. And those rare few people that can make it work together are designers. Um, but Instagram being leaning in towards that visual art uh, is how we get so many of our customers. There's two or three Facebook groups out there uh, that we've been very fortunate to get into and be referred by them inside. But it's almost all word of mouth. Tell two friends and pray they tell two more friends kind of thing. I love and that. And the gorilla suit does help. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the gorilla suit because my my 10 year old son's um, costume that we ordered him is a blow up gorilla suit and it didn't come in time for Halloween. And so it arrived yesterday and uh, he has been running around my house as a blow up gorilla um, for the last 24 hours. So um, next market, I really I cracked him. up when you said that. <laughs> next market, I expect him in front of my showroom. I'm going to pay that boy and dogs and chocolate <laughs> to be in my showroom. I love that. Well, you know, I um I am always just so intrigued in um trying to better understand, you know, what the interior designers needs are, but also what the manufacturers needs are. And so what are you finding um that maybe designers need to know more about in the manufacturing industry and, and working with you? I know you are very different than, you know. I guess, how do I say that? Because you're so custom, you're working one-on-one -on -one with them. But what do you feel like designers really need to better understand about the manufacturing industry? The advice I gave out of this market to a bunch of new designers that I met with was go, if you can do it at market, that's great. If not, go to the big furniture store in your, in your area or go to multiple furniture stores with a tape measure and a notepad and measure every piece of furniture, seat height, seat depth, overall depth, overall height make a chart, sit in that piece of furniture, because there is a correlation between those numbers. And once you go through enough pieces, you start to understand what that correlation is. So that you can then at some point, once you finally understand the correlation, you can read a catalog and know the comfort factor of that piece of furniture. Oh, interesting. Okay. There is, it's a, there's a science between it. For us, our number between seat depth and overall depth is 17. So from the pitch of the back and the thickness of the back pillow and the thickness of the back rail, all those add up to 17 inches for the perfect comfort for us. 
So if you have a 40 inch overall depth minus 17 inches, you can expect your seat depth to be 23 inches. Okay. Now, if I told you that that's that the overall depth was only 36, where does that come from? Well, usually it comes from the pitch. So all of a sudden, instead of me having a comfortable relaxation, I'm going to be sitting more upright. Oh, how interesting. Because that overall depth is such. And there's no way for me to teach that without you going and actually sitting in dozens of chairs, doing the, doing the measurements, and mm-hmm. sitting down and saying, okay, this was a 23-inch seat depth with a 19-inch seat height. What's the comfort level? Mm-hmm. And once you get that nailed, you become unstoppable when it comes to furniture. But those four numbers are so vitally important. And is that just something that you have discovered over time in, in your work in the, in the industry and making comfortable custom furniture? Yeah, it truly has. It's been wow. me sitting in furniture going, why is this one sit better than this one? And trying to understand it because we do so much custom work as well. I'll get dimensions in for a customer and we'll put it in, into build and it'll come out. I'll sit and go, why isn't this more comfortable than the other one? So mm-hmm. I'm very weird in this industry that I wasn't born in furniture. And I think most people in this industry were born into it. I mean, there are 300th generation furniture people, um, especially here in High Point or North Carolina. I'm not. I came from the airlines. So I had to learn all this. And there's no one on the street corner teaching this stuff. So I had to learn it the hard way. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, in the airline, we talk about butts and seats. It was butts and seats time of mm-hmm. just sitting in every piece of furniture and asking those questions and kind of being an idiot. I didn't know left from right. So right. I asked all the stupid questions and that's how I learned. And I was like, oh, there's actually science behind this. And even the people that are native to the industry don't see the science behind it because they just know it intuitively. Right. How interesting. So I'm sure that that is one way that designers can like just speak your language and uh, and get on the same page as you. But what else would you say um, as far as tips for designers in just having better relationships with their vendors um, and manufacturers? If you can ever get a chance to go do a tour of a factory or factories, do it. Go understand the process of how bill becomes a law. Um, because it really does change your paradigm of why does it take so long to do things? Why is it so much more expensive to do a waterfall skirt? It's just a skirt. Why is that four times more than doing a kick plate skirt? And I can try to explain it to you, but until you've actually seen it done, and once you see it done, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're not charging eight times yeah. more. Um, and every designer that we have that comes through the factory walks out going, I had no idea. I had no clue that this is what went on. I love that. Well, you know, when we come to High Point, we always gather our Pearl Collective community and we try to give them different types of experiences while we're there. So maybe I'll have to work with you to uh, come through one of your factories sometime. Would absolutely love it. It's so much fun. And it's uh, it's fun for my team to get to show off a little bit. You know, all the guys kind of puff up their chest a little bit. And, <laughs> you know, if I, if I make the mistake of, of warning them ahead of time that they actually have a clean shirt on and they're clean shaven and all that stuff. And um, I usually try to surprise them so they don't get all nervous about having people watch them do what they do because they're artists. You know, it's no different than going to an art studio and asking an artist if you could watch them paint a painting. They're like, no, I can't do that. My guys are the same way. They are truly doing an art. It just so happens they're working with fabric and frames, not a, a pen and paper or, or paint. That's incredible. Well, you know, this last market, I actually learned what the phrase spitting tax means. And nice. I, I was like, well, I did not know this. 
And I mean, it's still an art. It's still a craft that people are doing. My last tax spitter retired last year. Okay. And, uh, you know, the thing is, whenever you, in the morning when I get here, first thing I do is I drop my bag in my office. I immediately go out to the shop floor. I don't take a phone. I don't take a paper, nothing. I go and talk to every employee. I need to see how they are. I don't want to talk about furniture. I want to talk about them. I just want to see them one-on-one. And whenever I'd get to Mr. Harris, my tax spitter, I always had to see him last because after I saw him, I had to sit down on the buck next to him with a pair of pliers and pull all the tax out of my shoes before I could walk <laughs> back on the carpet because I would tear the carpet up up in the office. I love that. I love that. Well, let's talk, let's talk about your people. I mean, I'm sure it is a very different world to be running a factory and producing furniture. And it's not people just sitting down in front of a computer every day. So talk to me a little bit about your culture and, you know, not every, I would say not every person is going to just go talk to their people first thing in the day. So um, I love that about you already. So tell me more about this. The other weird thing about us, before I talk about that, (laughs) once a month, I come to work dressed like somebody. A gorilla? Pretty much. (laughs) And. I go out, so I wear the dingiest clothes I have, and I spend the entire day on the shop floor sweeping. And I start in one corner of the plant, and I sweep from one corner to the other. And the first time, for whenever we have a new employee, they see it for the first time, and they ask questions. I tell them, I say, I cannot do any of the work you do. You do not want me in the frame shop building frames. You definitely do not want me sewing. Um, You don't want me with sharp objects anywhere, and don't give me a (laughs) hammer. I mean, it's bad for everybody. The only thing that I can do in this shop is sweet. So if I can help make the place a little cleaner for you, then I'm going to do it. Yeah. But what it does, not only does it give them, it lets me be in their space more. It allows me to be there. When I walk through, they talk to me and I hear certain things. When I'm out there for an entire shift sweeping, I hear everything. And they talk to me on a whole different level than they would with me just coming by and saying good morning. Right. So it gives me a chance to really understand what's going on in their world. And if I ever hear, because here in my office, I'm right outside the shop floor, I can hear everything that's going on, on the floor. And if I ever hear things getting a little rough and tumbled out there, some disagreements or some frustration, um, I'll go out and grab a broom. And you know, I don't go, hey, what's going on? Why are y'all disagreeing? I just go grab a broom and I start sweeping. And it's how I get to hear what's really going on. Um, I'm no longer the boss at that time. I'm the guy who's sweeping the floor. Great. Right. Same page. So, on the same page with them. It's awesome. So uh, we have this amazing group of folks um, that are, everyone here came from another plant. Uh, the people who started the company came from the old Drexel heritage back in the old days. Okay. Uh, so we have that level of quality. The old one, Drexel was the it, right? Everyone aspired for a Drexel or a Henredon piece in their, in their house. That was this team where a lot of them came from. And then they brought their kids to work here and we've grown beyond that former coworkers from other plants have come over. It's a very weird place to work because a lot of the really big plants, when you go work there, you learn how to put on inside right arm. That's all you do all day long is you're on the track arm sofa line. And all you do is put on the inside right arm. The other guy next to you does nothing but put on inside left arm. That's it. That's all he does. Because you can't really might- mess it up. Is that way? That's it. They can train you in a matter of about two hours, and you can sit there and do that repeatedly and just knock it out. Inside right arm, slide it on. Inside right arm, slide it on. Or if you get to a medium-sized plant, you're working on 
the sofa line, but it's one of 12 styles, right? And they have 25 fabrics. You pretty much know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Here, you know, we have a really good catalog. And so we have, let's say, 100 different styles we build in our catalog, but then we have full custom. So you might be working, I guarantee you've never seen the fabric you're working with before because it's all COM. So every piece of fabric you get is different. And you're building a headboard now, you're doing an English arm next, you're doing something button tufted after that. So my team has got to be able to jump from one thing to another repeatedly without any consistency. So the required quality from them is so much higher Mm -hmm. than the folks that are doing inside right arm all day. So how do you train for that? You don't. Okay. Yeah. You basically, you follow the unicorn around and wait to see who he kisses. And that's who you hire. That really, that really is the only way to do it. Um, We are able to bring in, we have some things that are easier to build than others. Headboards, cubes, ottomans, things like that. So we'll bring people in and train them to do those things, but they still have to have pretty good skill. You cannot come right out of upholstery school and come here. Right. You have to have a good five years minimum of doing left arm, then right arm, right. and so on, and having gotten to a certain level before you can even do a headboard for us. And then once you're able to do our headboards and our beds, we'll start to train you up on the styles that we do see more often. My Savannah chair is the number one bestseller. Um, you know, we'll put X number of those through in a week. So that's the next thing you're gonna learn because you'll see it with some consistency so you can learn how to do it before we kind of throw you into this huge wide array of things that we do every day. Mm-hmm. Now I saw on your website that you have ages anywhere from 22 to 82 on your team. 84 now. Wow, incredible. Tell me my about cutter, this. My cutter came out of Drexel. Uh, he still works four days a week. He okay. is here at, at 4.45 a.m. Okay. every single day. He still carries bolts of fabric around. He's just amazing. And it's the most lovely, nicest man you've ever met in your entire life. During COVID, there was a law in this place. If anybody got within 20 feet of Mr. Clampett, they would lose a kneecap. It was like, you do anything it takes to protect Mr. Clampett. That is the law of the land. I don't care if you were tested five minutes ago, you're not allowed to get close to Mr. Clampett. How cool. So, and I'm sure that the age range is this kind of like keeping it in the family, right? Like exactly. parents and yep. grandparents have the legacy of bringing their kids in. So like, how do you foster that and in, in your culture? You know, it's, we went through a period of time here in High Point for years where that was the culture. Um, grandma worked in the, in the mill, then mom worked in the mill. So I'm going to go work in the mill. In 2008, when all the outsourcing happened um, overseas, Mm -hmm. that broke. And we lost an entire generation because those kids saw grandma get laid off after 42 years. Mom got laid off on the same day after, you know, 28 years. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let that happen to me. So we lost an entire generation. We just now are starting to pick up a young generation again of people who are interested in being makers that want to come into this space. So tell me about your... um your factory and how they work. I think you had mentioned in our earlier conversation that uh, they get to set their own work hours. Like yeah. a year old guy comes in at 445, but somebody else might come in at a different time. Yeah. So most plants, you know, it's like the Laverne and Shirley uh, opening session where you see all the kids lined up, you know, punching the clock to come in at the same time. And then a bell rings that tells you to go to the bathroom or a bell rings that says go to lunch. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. We let everybody set their own schedule. Um, a couple of my young guys have very young kids. 
And they, the most important thing to them is to drop that child off at the bus and to be there when the child gets off the bus. Amen. That's, that's their work hours. That's, we work around that and they're able to do that. We have other guys that, that want to come in. Um, my outsider is an avid gardener. So in the summertime, he wants out of here at noon so he can go play in his garden all afternoon. Mm-hmm. So he gets in here at four o'clock in the morning and works till noon. So he's in his garden by 1230. Wow. And, it, and we, we have some folks that come in at eight, leave at five, Monday through. I mean, it's whatever people want to do. We let them set their schedule uh, and we work the workload to make sure that that's functional for them. Yeah, I was going to ask how that how that affects production when it hurts us. It, okay. But it's a trade off. You know, you take care of the people first, find a way to make production work around them. And it takes a lot more planning on our side. It takes a lot more investment on our side of getting more frames in stock and more fabric cut ahead of time. And typically you want to do that stuff in as little time as possible. The minute you start to cut the frame, you want to cut the frame, cut the fabric, make the cushions all at the same time mm-hmm. so that you know, it takes about 15 man hours to build a sofa. And you want all that 15 hours to happen in about a day. You want it to all come in at one time so there's no wasting sitting around. We're cutting fabric three to four weeks ahead sometimes um, because he is here working on a different schedule. He needs work to do. So we do a lot of that moving around of work to make sure people have work when they want to work, even if it's not directly aligned with best practices for manufacturing. Mm-hmm. But it means we have a really, really awesome workforce of folks that could not get that anywhere else. You know, we're not big. We can't afford top dollar. We can't afford insurance. Um we can't afford a lot of the trappings the other folks have. All we have is a place where people, I, I want to say, want to come to work, but don't mind coming to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, nobody loves going to work, right? It's like, it's work. They, if, if it was, if it wasn't work, they'd call it fun. It'd be a whole different scenario. It's work. And they don't mind coming here. You know, they, I, I like to believe that they actually enjoy coming here a little bit as much as you can going to work, but we make it as enjoyable as, as humanly possible without giving away free puppies yeah, and champagne. That I think is so great because, I mean, if, if after you think about, like, you're only doing the, the left side arm, the left side arm, the left side arm, right? But if you are making di- such different pieces every single day, I know that my personality and my creativity would totally love that because I'm not, that's what I love about my job right now is I don't do the same thing every single day, you know? And it's it's a, it's, it's a problem coming in it's a problem going out. So when we get people into the company, it's very hard to, for them to adjust to it. It's also very far, very hard for them to leave and go somewhere else. Right. Because once they once they've been on the crack pipe and seen what this could do for them, they don't <laughs> want to go back to just drinking, you know, light beer. Yeah. Um, sorry, that's a horrible reference, but you get my <laughs> point. You know, because they do get addicted to that creativity. And the other thing is, we don't have a stopwatch out there. We don't tell you, you only have 45 minutes to build this chair. We give you the breath to do what you need to do. So if you get into a piece and it's not working, go walk around the building. Go sit down for 20 minutes. Set it off and get another piece up. You do what you need to do to be successful. That's fine with us. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, um, let's talk about just coming back since you are working with designers directly. And I know I hear from designers every single day. Let's talk about lead times. Like what are lead times like with custom furniture coming from? your? So if you're buying out of my catalog, it's about eight weeks. If you customize, you're just going to add a few inches, 10 to 12 weeks. Okay. 
if you're going to send me a picture that you drew or a page out of someone else's catalog or something out of Garden and Gun, the timeline's going to start at 20 with no end. Okay. We're so averaging 26 to 28. Mm-hmm. Correct. That's when we're starting. We have no basis to start with. We're starting from absolute scratch. Okay. And to explain to you why, whenever I build my Savannah chair, my best-selling little tub chair, um, it's in every house that our designers do. It just fits everywhere. Whenever you order a Savannah chair, the minute they start to build the frame, they go ahead and cut the fabric. They go ahead and build the cushions. Everything happens at one time. The minute that frame gets set off, everything is in it. Like literally, it can come out. The poly kit's already put together, put in. The cushion's already there, gets put in. The fabric's already cut and sewn, put in. It can flow right through. Okay. The minute you even add one inch to, you buy my loud and sofa and you want it 89 instead of 88 inches. Mm-hmm. We can't do that anymore. Right. Because we don't know all those dimensions. So mm-hmm. the frame has to get done. It has to go to spring up, has to go to finishing. Then it comes out and gets patterned to have just the seat roll cut and get the inside seat done. Get that installed. Then they pad out the inside back, get that done. Then for the first time, they can measure what the arms need to look like because they now have the padding to understand what goes. So all of these things I was able to do at one time on a non-customized piece has to happen in step. And your timeline not only is dependent on how long it takes to do that step for you, but what's in front of you. And that's really dependent when it comes to full custom because there is one team that does the full custom where we don't have a pattern. We have nothing. They're starting from scratch. One team. So you could be number two in line, and it might take two weeks for us to get to you because number one in line just goes off the rails. We had to rebuild the frame three times. We couldn't get the cushions to fit, whatever. We have to keep on working until it gets done. So Mm -hmm. if you really want that single piece of custom and not to start with something in our catalog, glad to do it for you. You're going to pay financially and timeline-wise because it's simply there is no fast path down down that rail. I think it's super helpful to hear you talk about the different levels of customization, but also the different timelines, because I know in this world of instant gratification of, you know, I can, I can order anything on Amazon. And I had something delivered from Amazon an hour later on my doorstep. And I'm like, what is actually happening here? This this is not healthy for me to see. No, it's really not good. But you know, a lot of times it's, you know, the client's expectation is they, they sign off on the proposal. They are dreaming of what they're going to look like opening presents on their brand new stuff at Christmas time. The designer does their very best to get everything out the door to you as quickly as possible. And then everybody sits and waits, right? So I think that it's helpful um, to share that process so that, you know, we're, we're realizing like this is handmade. I remember when I, um, when I built my house, and I was going through and, you know, I have a little bit of a different uh, blue line checklist than most people. And I had to apologize a little bit. I'm like, I'm sorry. It was like my background. Like, I just am seeing things here that like are still going to need to be fixed. And and the guy's like, I do have to remind people like this was built by hand. Like this was not built by a robot. It wasn't built by a exactly. going to be character and flies um, in this house. So um, really helpful to better understand that. Well, and also because we deal with all COM, we don't know what your fabric's going to be like. And right. a lot of times designers will send us a swatch. We'll look at it and go, this, this seems to be good. We don't know how it's going to lay out whenever we actually, you know, because we plan on, we look at our estimated yardage, we're looking at best practice of we could typically nest left arm and right arm together, or we can get the welt out of the, out of the sides or things like that. 
Well, if the way your pattern is laid out on that fabric, which we can't see on a swatch, and mm -hmm. even the repeats and things that the uh, mill tells you are not always really valuable, or if there's a lot of stretch to it, or maybe there's no stretch to it, um, or there's one little pick right in the middle of it, right where you need to cut, and you end up wasting, I, right. all those things could push things back as well. So, you know, I always tell designers, custom is where you can make a lot of money. And I just posted on Instagram today, one of my designers did this really amazing, one of my best selling soap is the Hadley. He did this uh, black and white houndstooth on it. But then on the front arm panels and around the base, he did an orange gimp to outline it. See this black okay. and white sofa with this really cool orange gimp, wow. which just adds this little sassiness to it. It's a really <laughs> traditional style, but you look at it and it's so current and fresh with what he did. You can't get that from Amazon. That's why you hire a designer. If you want beige sofa number 101, go buy it from Amazon. Right. Leave me alone. But if you actually want creativity and style, then go to a designer, but be prepared because it's going to take a while for them to design it and for us to build it for you. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about your brand. Um, I know that internally I got back from High Point Market and I was telling my marketing assistant, I'm like, we got to talk to Ted Scott. And then we, we had some confusion and realized I had my names wrong. I was a little mixed up after, and it was D David Ferris. But you have mentioned that um, Ted Scott started from a company that you purchased called Barnes Custom Upholstery. And yes. obviously, there was a name and a brand change. So I know we've gone through a brand change in this last year. And I feel like the, like, the mistletoe is always you know, sitting out as I'm sitting down to watch Mar March Madness. I'm like, where did that come from? Where did you... I, I thought I got everything on the checklist. So tell me about your your um i guess decision to rebrand and rename and and how how you went about that so you know when i bought the company um the it had been around for 40 some odd years and i didn't want to break that you know customers had been buying from this company for a long time and my very first market in our showroom which is right next to modern history uh in the hamilton Ridden district we're on the street front and people are walking by just like a regular store you would on downtown, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching designers walk by and they look in the window, smile a little bit. They look at our sign, scrunch up their face and look back at the window. You could tell it, there was a, a mismatch. It didn't work for them. And the first one who did it, I was like, that was odd. And then a little while later, somebody else did it. And somebody, so all of a sudden became this trend that it was very, very clear to me that there was a mismatch between what they saw visually and what our name was. Got so it. I started asking questions. And I would say, so what do y'all think about the name Barnes? They're like, you know, it doesn't really hold any anything for us. It's not a name that, you know, you hear Lee and you think good quality furniture, right. really broad brand, good family, been around for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Baker, any of those names, you have a passion behind that or you at least have an understanding behind that name. Nobody had anything behind Barnes. But the name Barnes, there was something about melodically or whatever that just didn't resonate for them. So I started asking the question, should we rebrand? And that landed us with a branding agency. And they did all of the typical branding questions of, you know, what color is your parachute? And do you tap your left foot or right foot first? And, you know, all this stuff and all the different, you know, what color would you be if you were the letter C? I mean, it's that kind of thing, right? Right. And you go through all these meetings and all this stuff and you're just going, please, God, land the plane at some point. Now, our corporate name is Theodore Scott. My middle name is Theodore, which is my mother's maiden name. My husband's middle name is Scott. Okay. So Theodore Scott is our corporate name. 
And the brandy people, after all of these, what colors your parachute and dolphins and, and elephants and whatever stuff they came up with, they said, we feel your name should be Theodore Scott. And I said, we think you're crazy because in furniture, the minute you say the word Theodore, all you hear is Alexander. Right. And trust me, there's a lot of companies I don't mind competing against. TA is not one of them. They're an amazing company, do a great job, and I don't even want to try to compete on their space. Right. So I explained this to them, and I was like, we're not doing Theodore, and this is why. They're like, okay. So we went back through, and we came up with the name Maple and Spring. So we're trying to, right, we're trying to get to a younger clientele. We're trying to speak to the millennial generation, the new designers who are coming up that are just fabulous and powerful and really driving this industry forward. We wanted to speak their language and Maple and Spring. I mean, the minute I say it, you can already see the font in your brain, right? I mean, Maple and Spring, it's so clear. Um, our frames are made out of Maple, you know, Spring. It's the whole thing made sense. There was a story behind it. Maple and Spring was our name. So we're in the final meeting and I have the whole branding team and I have my team and we're all in the room together or virtually. And we're talking about the final name. We're choosing colors and landing the jet on this. And one of the branding people made the mistake of saying, before we finish, before we go, I just still have to say, we still think it should be Theodore Scott. Now, I'm a very relaxed, non-emotional person, <laughs> as you can tell. I don't get upset. I don't, I, I have no emotion whatsoever. So you can imagine how calmly I responded to this. Um, your listeners are nicer than the people I deal with, so I'm not going to use the language that I used at that moment. But let's just suffice it to say that I basically got bleeped out of a whole lot of words and said, if you want to use that name, fine, go do it. But I'm telling you right now, do not ever refer to me as Theodore. And my mother, all the way through school, last name was Theodore, her nickname was Teddy. I said, you can call me Ted, you can call me Teddy, whatever you want, just do not ever refer to me as Theodore. And the entire room went, Ted Scott. And that was it. Oh my gosh. That was it. And all of a sudden, everyone in the room just like took the Maple and Spring catalog and tore it up and threw it away and said, it's Ted Scott. It's Ted Scott. I love it. Well, there's a lot of meaning behind that too. That's great. So it, was, it, was, it was a hard fought battle, but I think we landed with the right name. And then what, what are some of the things that you did as you became Ted Scott Designs to make sure that the people that you're working with and your ideal clients of designers are starting to understand who you are and what you're doing? You know, we use both names for about two markets. Everything we put out there had both names on it. Okay. And so people would say, so Ted Scott is like, yeah, yeah. And we kind of tried to tell the story through it. Right. Uh, we did buttons at market said, you know, have you met Ted? Um, all that kind of thing and kind of try to lean into it. You know, one of the reasons behind Ted Scott and when we chose the name, it works so perfectly because we have such a personal connection with our designers. Mm -hmm. It is one-on-one. -on -one. The way that we name new furniture is based on the designer who brought it to us. Okay. So, you know, typically they'll bring me a picture of a garden and gun or something and say, could you build me something like this? Uh, now, if, if it's something that you drew, you designed, you created from your own, you own that. We don't touch it. But if it simply is you're giving us inspiration and we create it, we'll add it to our catalog. Mm -hmm. And then we name it after you. So I, you know, and I, unfortunately I have some, I have some designers where I've made it through their entire family. I've made it through the dogs. I've made it through their assistants. And now like I'm having them go out and like, who's in your pickleball league? I mean, give me some more names here. You know, we just keep on adding on to these names and all these people, but that's how personal we are where I literally know right. the names of the dogs of some of my, of my customers. I love um, it. 
so with Ted Scott, it made us personal. You know, there was no Barnes in the room, but right. Ted Scott is a person. Yeah, uh, it is not a word upholstery that just kind of gets confusing. Like, yeah, and there's no custom. I really like it. I think that's great. Well, you Thank know, I'm you. glad when I got back from market, I wasn't feeling very well, so I'll give you that. But I kept going, Ted Scott. I got to talk to Ted Scott, and I'm like, this, who's Ted Scott? I'm like, oh, David Ferris. That's right. That's yeah, right. that's it's all the same. And my it, it does work because my middle name is Theodore, so Ted is a nickname for it. So you can call me Ted, and I will answer to it. Well, I know that you mentioned um, in our pre-conversation for this that you are flying out today for your side hustle. Yes. Tell me a little bit about this side hustle because I've heard that you um, have some award-winning in-flight services for airlines or something. You are never going to be more impressed with anybody in the entire world than you're going to be with me at this exact moment. Okay. That I, I am. It's like you have the Emmys, the Academy Awards, you have the CMAs, you have all these amazing awards, but nothing can compare to my awards, which are um, designing onboard service for airlines. Yes, there's actually an entire group of people who do nothing but decide which peanuts you eat and whether you're getting Coke or Sprite and what the China looks like. And it actually goes much deeper into that, into all the menu development, the wine programs, the way the flight attendant speaks oh, to you, how that card is packed, all the logistics behind it. There's this whole science behind onboard service for airlines. Um, and I've actually won two international awards for doing that. Um, Congratulations. Is, uh, yeah, I had yeah. no idea. So you how know, did you get into that? I started when I first graduated college. I wanted to be a pilot, and I had 2,500 vision. And at that time, you could not have glasses as a pilot. So I went through flight school. I went as far as I could and wanted to go airline management. And again, at that time, there was no airline management degree, right? I mean, Orville and Wilbur had just taken off a, a week before that. So there was nothing to it, you know? Uh, so I ended up as a flight attendant and flew for Piedmont Airlines for uh, Piedmont and US Air for eight years. I was a German speaker. So I spent uh, about 13, 14 months of my life uh, in Germany five times a month. Okay. So I've, li I've literally been to Germany over a hundred times. Wow. Um, uh, I could barely speak the language, so I passed the test, and that's all that matters. There you go. Uh, and I went from that. I just kind of finally got my way into the office and got into onboard service, and that's really what I wanted to do. I was I was always fascinated with catering, onboard catering. Um, not as I love the food part of it, and I love the hospitality part of it. It's the logistics part of it. And when you look at like Washington Dulles Airport, um, our kitchen that I, I worked for one of the caterers for a number of years. Our kitchen there had, I think, 11 or 14 international airlines that flew there. And when that bank arrived and you had 11 wide-body jets dump in the dish room at one time, and every airline and every class of service has different cutlery and different glassware and different everything, and it all hits that dish room at one time. And then a day later, it pushes back out the other side of the building with fresh food on it in the right cart, in wow. the right configuration. It's absolutely amazing to see that whole thing happen and watch those people do that work. And I just, I first time I ever saw anything about it, I was just on it and uh -huh. fell in love with it. And then, so you were doing that. And then what made you and your, and your husband decide to then do this upholstery side of things? So I found that reupholstery shop, uh, we own a reupholstery shop in Greensboro in addition to the factory here in High Point. And I found the reupholstery shop. Um, I was looking for a side hustle, literally. Uh, I had left the airlines, an old boss of mine from the airline side had dragged me out into technology and it wasn't active enough. You know, I was used to airline world and 
technology was boring compared to airlines. Right. So I needed something to keep me busy. And I was looking for a cabinet shop to buy. I've always loved piddling around with woodworking. And I thought I loved flipping houses way before HGTV became a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know what, if I had a cabinet shop, we could, I could continue to flip houses and make our own cabinets and, you know, it'd be a really good combination. And I kept on looking at the ads and this reupholstery shop came up and I knew nothing about it. But one thing led to another. I met the owner, realized it was a really good business. So we ended up buying that. And as we're walking in the door to uh, to sign the paperwork, the business broker said, once you get it settled, I have something I want to talk to you about. Well, a squirrel? What, a squirrel? There, there's something else? What? <laughs> and six months later, I called and was like, I can't get this out of my mind. What were you talking about? And it was Barnes. And it was like, because I come from that, it sounds weird, but airline catering is manufacturing right. at, an, at a huge level. I had to the point where... If I have a hub airline, like in Atlanta or Dallas, if I can convince that airline to change their fir- their first-class fruit plate from a quarter-inch dice to a half-inch dice, I could eliminate one full-time employee. Wow. That's that's the scale you're talking about. Okay. So, you know, that's manufacturing at an amazingly huge scale mm-hmm. and very finite scale. So, I love the whole manufacturing piece. And this was after having gotten my feet wet in the reupholstery side, this was simply that next level is coming in and actually building it in addition to re- reupholstery it. And then full circle, now the the airline piece is your permanent side hustle. So you're just a busy guy. You know, at my old boss uh, that I worked for previously called and she's like, what are you doing? I was like, I own three companies. What do you think I'm doing? She said, you're bored. I can tell you're bored. <laughs> and I was like, trust me, I'm not bored. And you know, as, as, as luck would have it, I'd had a little, a couple of health issues that happens to all of us. Mm-hmm. And the day before she called, I had just done the tally of our health expenses for the previous year. Um, and I swear she has a camera in my house. She has to have it. There's no way she would have known. Alexa. And she's like, look, I have this job. You'd be, you'd be kick ass at it. It's what you've always done. Um, and I'll give you free full insurance for you and Tony. And I was oh, like, wow. So I talked to my team here. I asked them about it. They're like, we're good. We're solid. You know, it's, I do my airline work mainly on the weekends, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The plant is busiest Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So it actually dovetails well. Um, Most of my work with my designers is on email as it is. So I'm able to do that when I'm like tonight, when I fly to LA, I'll be on email all night doing quotes and emailing customers. Um, It actually works really well. I get my little cabin on the airplane and just sit there and, you know, do quotes the whole time. It's perfect. You eat your like half inch diced fruit. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being on today. It's been an incredible journey and just hearing that, gosh, what a creative uh, career path that you've had. And um, I definitely want to talk about bringing art designers into your factory for sure. I'd love to meet them. Um, but we always love to end our podcast with like, what are three things that you'd like to share with our um, our listeners that are designers and entrepreneurs and creative people? So I have to think about, it. I have two of them. I have to think about what the third one is. Okay. The first thing is like my secret desire when I grow up is I want to be a public speaker. That's like okay. my goal in life is I want a career in public speaking. And the topic that I want to speak on is how to fail in business. Okay. Everyone else is talking about how to succeed in business. I want to talk about how to fail in business because what I've realized through my life and especially working with designers is there is such a horrendous fear of failure that a lot of designers make a ton of mistakes 
because of that fear. Okay. Where if they would actually embrace thing, right? Well, it's because they're so afraid of failure that they will reach at a lot of things they shouldn't reach for, thinking that it might save off failure. And what I challenge your your listeners to do is to contemplate failure and not necessarily embrace it, but kind of come to terms with it. So that kind of have that plan that says, you know what, if I fail, it's gonna hate me, no one's gonna disown me. You know, here's how I'm gonna pay my bills, here's how I'm gonna move forward, and kind of get to that point so that you never let yourself get pushed into a position where you're acting out of fear of failure and making bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very different way of looking at business. Very it different. truly is, but it really does free you it's up. A healthier to make mindset. The, well, and it, it frees you up to make better decisions. You're not, you know, every day I talk to a designer who says, um, oh, I shouldn't have taken this job, but I was really low on business. I had to. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's, that's, and they almost ruined their business because they did that. Whereas mm-hmm. they looked at it and said, you know what? I'm said I'm ready for failure. So I don't take this job. If I don't get another one, failure is planned. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do this. So I think that's a really important one. Um, the other one is very much on a personal level. I used to be a running coach and I coached uh, almost 700 runners from first step. I was coached beginners from mm-hmm. first step to half marathon. And wow. I feel at this point in my life that there's nothing more important in our lives, professionally, personally, romantically, nothing than the straight concept of get up, get out and get moving, where every single day, no matter what's going on in your world, no matter where you are, um, get up off your butt and move for 30 minutes. If you can get outdoors and walk, run, skip, bike, do an epic living room dance party, it doesn't matter. But 30 minutes a day is just so incredibly vital to your mental health, your physical health, your ability to transact business. Mm -hmm. Um, the amount of clarity that I get 30 minutes each morning running or walking, um, it's like this light bulbs just flash all over the all over the place. And on those days I don't get out and do it. I'm a Royal bitch to deal with all day. It's it's really weird. It's a very strange thing that I don't get that little cleansing. And I think that especially as business people, designers are getting so much of their soul every day. Mm -hmm. They've got to take that 30 minutes and move. And just get out there and let their body move in some way and let their brain get a little release uh, in order to be able to go and hit it the way they need to. So Uh those are my two biggest ones. You know, the third one, I'd have to say, um, if you're not asking 10 questions in every conversation, you're failing. You know, you even if you know the answer, ask the question because there's something new to learn. It goes so long. And. You get to a point in your career where you're like, oh, I've done it a hundred times. I know all about it. Find a way to ask 10 questions or make it five. Find whatever your magic number is, three, your three questions. Make sure that you are being inquisitive at every turn, especially when you think you know all the answers. Mm-hmm. You have the PhD in that subject. You should. If you have the PhD, you should be asking even, even more questions. If nothing else, to validate your PhD, to validate you know all the information. But so many times I have designers who will, People look at us and say, oh, I thought it was this. Ask, you know, it'll help me learn. I'm never going to be offended. And if somebody is offended by your question, they're not the right partner for you. No stupid questions. Yeah. No stupid questions. None. And there is no building furniture, as you said earlier, is not a machine. It's not a robot stamping out a piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, furniture is still the same. We still sit the same as they did 500 years ago. 
there's not that much difference in furniture over the past couple hundred years, but there's small nuanced differences that when you learn those nuances actually do make a tremendous difference in the comfort, the delight of your customer, and most importantly, your profits. Mm-hmm. So just beat the door down with questions at every turn, no matter what you do. Thank you so much. And I wish you a very safe flight to LA today. Um, And, you know, I look forward to continuing our uh, connection and um, hopefully I'll get to see, uh, come into Ted Scott at at market next time I'm there. I look forward to seeing you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, David Ferris, for joining us on the podcast and sharing your insights on running a business in the design industry, as well as closing out season seven of our podcast. Stay tuned on our website, social media, or favorite podcast platform for news about season eight coming soon. In the meantime, you can catch up on all seven seasons of the Creative Genius Podcast if you haven't listened to all of our episodes yet. Right now, you can also download our 2023 Interior Design Business Survey on fees, salaries, and current state of the industry. Get it for free now at thepearlcollective.com slash podcast survey. 